0: Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today in the chair we have Josh. Josh is 47 years old and currently lives in Melbourne, Australia. He's in recovery from alcohol addiction and his sobriety date is the 23rd of July 2015. Josh and I have actually only met once before at a 12-step meeting and it was my partner who knows Josh well that suggested I invite him onto the show. So I'm beyond thrilled that he's agreed to come in here today to share his story. And with that, I'd love to welcome Josh into the studio and onto the show. Josh, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today?
1: Good. Thanks, Ash. Yep. A little bit nervous, but overall good.
0: That's totally normal. Have you ever done anything like this before?
1: No, never.
0: (laughs) Like I said off air, we're just having a chat. We're having a coffee and a chat. That's all it's about.
1: Okay, let's go.
0: (laughs) Let's dive into it. Now I'd love for our listeners to have the opportunity to get to know a little bit about you before we dive into the photo today. So can we kick it off with you telling us where you're from, what an average day looks like and what do you do for fun?
1: Sure. So I guess way, way, way back, I was born in Chicago and I came here when I was three years old, hence why I don't have a US accent. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Melbourne, like a middle class suburb, and both my parents were academics. And I, I mean, they did divorce when I was 10 years old, but I, I'd call my childhood pretty kind of normal, vanilla. Um, and yeah, I mean, I did suffer from a little bit of anxiety when I was young. I remember when I went to, primary school I'd often say to my mum when she was giving me a lift I feel like I'm gonna throw up so there was a bit of weird stuff going on when I was you know quite young but um yeah that's kind of my back my you know growing up um in terms of what a day looks like I've got three kids 13 11 and four so it's pretty much just kind of chaos mm. um, in the morning but I do try to pray if I'm good I'll kind Of get down on my knees and pray, which is something that we, I guess we can discuss a bit later in terms of what I do now. But and if I'm not, you know, if it's just too chaotic, I'll often just remember to do it in the shower or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, I um I work as a solicitor, so I've kind of got a reasonably you know hectic job, um, but I enjoy it and I've also been kind of involved in businesses, um. I'm still kind of involved as as a kind of um, silent partner. So you know, I've got a busy life. I probably I can't believe I haven't done this yet, but sorry, I'm married. Been, sorry, um, I am married. It's for okay. You can years. apologize to your wife later. Yeah, it's like when you do like a, an Academy Award <laughs> speech and you forget <laughs> forget your partner. Anyway, um, and yeah, what do I do for fun? Like I love to cook, which is good because my wife doesn't. And we've got a veggie patch, like a community veggie garden, which I've kind of gone into for the last 12 months, which has been really cool. Um, and I also kind of during the pandemic got into riding. So I've got a couple of really good guys that I ride around my neck of the woods with, um, which has been really good for kind of mental health and physical health. And that's about it.
0: That's Awesome. Being a solicitor and being in recovery sounds like a really interesting combination. So I'm keen to find out how that all progressed throughout your story. And we will dive into that shortly. But Josh, I've asked you to bring in a photo today. Now this photo is from a time in your life where your insides didn't match your outsides. Perhaps you were presenting one version of yourself to the world, but the truth was you were struggling. You were hiding behind a smile. Can you describe for our listeners what this photo looks like and what was going on for you at the time?
1: Sure. Um, well, the the specific photo was actually me playing poker, um, and the actual kind of outcome of that wasn't too bad because I came fifty eighth out of a many thousands in the field, and so I actually made made a bit of money. But I guess for me, it, it, around that time, I was living in I'd probably say a lot of ego. Um, and just a lot of self-will and I was just trying so hard, t- holding so tight about just trying to get ahead and um, I was just drinking a lot at that time, like I was probably drinking four nights a week. I was never a daily drinker but um, I certainly around that time was definitely aware that there was some real negative side effects and consequences to the amount I was drinking but I had I was oblivious to um, – you know alcoholism or anything like that I just it was just kind of um, drinking too much and I guess some of the negative impacts were my relationships starting with my wife but also moving further out to my sister and my mum my health like I remember getting a liver function test and the doctor saying you know the readings are you know very high.
0: They're not a test you want to perform well on. Hey, no. you don't want a high score on those kind of tests.
1: That's right. And um, yeah, I guess um, I yeah, I guess that's probably the best way to describe it. I was just um, in a haze, um, but at the time, I had no idea I was in a haze. It was just mm. like this um, this space where I thought that alcohol was serving me well, and I just was in this cycle Um, but if you'd asked me at the time I would have hand on heart told you that everything was fine and I was just like every other normal punter having a crack at life um, and going hard but but it was it was internally it was very difficult.
0: And so you got sober in 2015 how much earlier was this photo taken do you remember the year?
1: From memory I think it was two thousand and fourteen. So some, pretty some soon before you got sober. Sometime in 2014, yeah.
0: And was gambling a part of your story or was that something that you sort of just did for fun over the weekend?
1: So, yeah, I guess, um, like, I've never kind of done Gamblers Anonymous or something like that, but I definitely um, when I drank, I was a lot more reckless with my gambling and I gambled more than what I was comfortable with. Um, you know, without being... I think to some extent, uh, my gambling was more, um, I got into kind of poker. And so I actually did okay. And so, so that probably um, disguised, but um, some of the negative consequences of gambling. But yeah, for me, definitely not anywhere near the impact alcohol had. But um, since I've kind of gotten to recovery, um, I've played poker a handful of times, but I don't do any other gambling apart from Melbourne Cup on which Melbourne Cup Day and Mm. that's it.
0: Mm. It's interesting how we can form, often you hear the phrase polysubstance abuse, but it can also play out in other ways. Just like you've said, if you have an addiction to, say, alcohol or drugs, then you might have these behavioural playouts that come out in either gambling, sex, food. And it's interesting when you remove the core addiction, that primary addiction, those secondary addictions often fall away as well.
1: Yeah, I've I've definitely heard of the whole whack-a-mole phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Um and yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm conscious of that. I'm conscious that in recovery it's not just about putting down the alcohol, it's also about trying to live a kind of a good life and a peaceful life and sometimes yeah, if you're getting obsessed with whether it's gambling or whatever else, mm. that's not helpful.
0: No, it's not. Let's travel back to your earlier years now. You just mentioned that you had what you considered to be quite a, I'm using air quotes here, normal childhood, but you did experience your parents separating at age 10. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what was Josh like as a boy growing up and were there any significant incidences or moments in time that you think might have shaped your behaviour towards alcohol?
1: Sure. Um, I think I was always had a very strong will, if you like, to the, like, I I don't recall this, but I've been told this, that even when I was, like, three years old, when I didn't get my way, I picked up a softball bat and literally attacked my father with it. So I've always kind of, you know, been quite um, willful. In terms of the impact, like, I don't think that the divorce had – much of an impact on me personally i think maybe my sister more and she's not even you know in recovery and she has no issues like that but um maybe it was that you start to realize that your parents who you think when you're quite young you think adults are just perfect and i'm a child so i don't understand or adults know everything i started to probably see it Around that time, that kind of ten years old, that adults are, yeah, possibly broken. Adults aren't always right. Adults, so you know, there was that kind of learning that that I was able to kind of grasp. But in terms of um, what was I like as a child, I think um, I think I had a lot of fear, and I think for, for me, and this this actually even in recovery, like once I got sober, this was still an issue. Um, even for the first probably three years of my recovery, I had an epic fear of death. And so um, I remember the first time I actually comprehended the co- concept of forever, you know, yeah. in relation to death. And I remember where I was, and I don't know how old I was. I was probably eight, nine or ten or something like that. But but fear from that and just other fears were always a part of my kind of existence. And so, um, yeah, fortunately I've kind of... Recovery, ironically, has actually helped that tremendously. And whether or not that's, you know, got something to do with alcohol or not, like my recovery has had to kind of face up to all those fears, not just um just day to day fears.
0: Well, it's one of the incredible gifts that we get when you work a twelve step program, isn't it? That you get to look at your fears and you actually start to really unpack them. And I for me I've started to realize how fear was this corroding thread that was running all through my life and it was impacting all of my decisions, whether they were big decisions or small decisions. And when you're living from a place of fear, the world is really small.
1: 100%.
0: It's amazing that you were able to, through this process of getting sober, start to unpack some of those really big core fundamental identity blockages, I would call them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to the point where in my, you know, again – at the time, it's almost... I, I I get a lot of revelations almost after the fact. Like, at the time, I'm unable to even put a, a label on my emotions or my, my headspace. It's kind of almost afterwards that I'm able to kind of reflect. But, you know, a couple of years into recovery, um, I had these deep-seated... I was fearful and struggling. Like, I didn't pick up alcohol, but um, I remember just thinking, is this what recovery is all about? So when I started getting honest with some older sober members and just said, look, Hey, what about this? Or what about that? And they started giving me advice and I started doing some of these things and I probably got through nothing other than pain. My spiritual program probably got deepened because I just had to start to get serious. Otherwise I was, I was going to be just fearful and miserable and sober rather than, you know, fearful and um, crazy and, um, you know actively <laughs> drinking so yeah I'm, I'm kind of very grateful that I didn't actually expect recovery to involve dealing with some of those fears I just thought it was just okay let's deal with the alcohol because that's that's the pressing problem but and it's, it's been a lot better than that
0: it's one of the biggest misconceptions isn't it that we get sober because we've got a problem with alcohol but when you unpack it we're actually using alcohol to deal with the problems that we live with day to day. So you remove the alcohol, the problems are still there, you need something else to be able to address those and that's where we implement a spiritual program.
1: 100%, yeah, that's exactly right.
0: When did your relationship with alcohol begin?
1: Well, I mean, it, it literally first began when I was 13. I remember just drinking with an older guy, um he kind of was his suggestion and we stole slash appropriated Bacardi from my mum's pantry that I think was used previously for some recipe, but she doesn't drink pretty much at all. Um, yeah, and I was walk, you know, crawling around the backyard um, and I got, yeah, completely wasted and blacked out. Um, and then, you know, I, I just drunk – I was always a, a binge drinker. I always – found it difficult to moderate or just get to a, a nice, happy place. I just keep going. Um, so my relationship started then, but I think in my mid-twenties, I st- certainly the way in which I used alcohol changed because I I started a small business and I was overwhelmed within you know, weeks mm. um, emotionally. I found it very difficult and I had all these huge ambitions. So I was kind of like stuck stuck trying to prove to the world that I can do this, but then coming home and just being afraid. And um, I remember at that stage, previous to that, I was just a binge drinker and, and didn't think too much about it. But at, I remember thinking, oh, this is going to give me the ability to just calm down after a crazy day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, that was my mid-20s and I got sober when I was, you know, a week before I turned 40. So, you know, I'm a slow learner. It took me <laughs> 15 years to to kind of work out exactly what i thought it was a priority in terms of putting down the drink and and keeping it down
0: i think what you've touched on there is really interesting it's this idea behind our motive with drinking isn't it because some people will drink to have fun and to socialize but it's when you start to drink for effect that i think the danger lies it's like i want to i want to change the way i'm feeling on the inside so i'm going to put this poison into my body and wait for something to happen, and that's where for me anyway. That's when I became a dependent daily drinker when I was actually needing it as opposed to just wanting it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I relate to that. I relate to having the yeah the the personality change that kind of took away just fears and underlying anxiety, and then just getting that sense of airs and comfort. And then, um, but then once I started then I I wouldn't it wouldn't just stop there I generally hit it pretty hard but I was never a daily drinker because my hangovers well at the start they weren't too bad but towards as it progressed my um my hangovers were so brutal that I was four days of drinking was you know Mm. still a a heavy task for me
0: Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that as well you mentioned that you started to have these troubles in your mid-20s you didn't get sober till your 40s. So we've got about 15 years there of crashing and bashing, I'm going to assume. Can you talk to me about what that looked like for you and what was going on for you in terms of work, your relationships, and all of that?
1: Yeah, look, um, I, uh, you know, in my, in my mid 20s, I'd already found my, my current wife and I'd asked her to marry me. And I kind of had this, felt this need to. Sh- know, pr- prove to her but also prove to her family that, you know, I was a worthy partner and so I was going pretty hard from a professional standpoint and, you know, started this new business and I didn't have a lot of obligations but they seemed completely overwhelming like a lease and a secretary. She wasn't even working full-time, you know, it was like part-time but it was, it was all-consuming and overwhelming. Um, before that, I'd been an employee and I think that I just found... I kept doing it and I kept wanting to prove to myself and everyone else that I could do it. But it was, um, you know, I I was just using alcohol to kind of deal with that. And then the consequences of using alcohol more routinely and regularly was that I would often go out with people after work and then get home late. Mm. And that wasn't good for my relationship with my wife who was – you know, getting home at a normal time, like six o'clock and thinking, well, when are you going gonna to be home for dinner, Josh, at seven? And I'll be home at 10 or 12 or 3 a.m. And so – and then my ability to operate the next day was clearly impaired. Mm. So, I mean, just basic stuff like that. Um, in terms of, you know, the bashing and crashing, I mean, there's a whole spectrum. And I've got some pretty epic bashing stories, not literal bashing, but – You know, I remember my sister-in-law's wedding, my behaviour was completely and utterly out of control. Um, And, you know, I had to make amends for that. But there's been, it was more my behaviour, you know, I didn't end up locked up in jail. I didn't end up harming anyone physically, you know, thank God. But my my behaviour was something that I was not, didn't sit right with me. You know, if I, you know, from a sober, when I was sober, and if I remembered what I did and often I would have recollections of certain things, it never sat right with me, mm. you know. And I couldn't work out, I couldn't reconcile me, the version of me that I wanted versus some of my actual behaviour when I was on the piss. And so um, it just, it was like incremental for me because when I when I got into recovery and people were talking about powerlessness and unmanageability, paradoxically – some of my financial professional life was actually doing quite well mm. in my late 20s and 30s. So there's like – I'd look at some parts and I'd go, well, hang on, I'm doing well here, I'm doing well there. So it it in a way it kind of disguised some of the other elements of my internal you know, emotional condition because mm. uh, I was just focusing on some of these outside things and going, well, that's doing okay and that's doing okay. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: I was exactly the same. I describe it as ticking life's boxes, all of these things that society tells us we need to acquire and to achieve. I was doing all of that, got the uni degree, got the husband, got the house, kept getting promoted. But the truth of it all was that I was slowly dying on the inside. You know, this light that I had was just slowly fading and fading. And I didn't even realize there was any problem with that because- when I looked at my outsides, they looked exactly the same as everyone else's.
1: Yes, I'll relate to that. And, yeah, that that literally is kind of my story as well.
0: When did you first identify as an alcoholic?
1: Not even when I turned up to Alcoholics Anonymous. So
0: What? Okay. So what drove you to AA then?
1: Um, literally helplessness and not so i if i go back a little bit in my mid 30s i definitely it was pretty obvious that i had a drinking problem and people around me close people around me my mother my sister my wife had definitely been like you've got to sort your shit out so i probably from 37 to 39 i was consciously trying to stop and what baffled me was even at that stage, professionally in other areas I'd done two degrees and all this kind of stuff, I could put my mind to something and achieve it and I just couldn't work out why I would wake up hungover or even not hungover but have clarity enough to say, this is a new way I want to live, not drinking. You know, let's find a whole weekday lifestyle that doesn't involve drinking and I'd, I'd see it, I'd visualise it, I'd, I'd want it and I just couldn't commit to it. I, well, I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped and it was bizarre because in other areas where I visualised and said, this is what I'm going to do, I'd do it. So, for yeah, for two years basically I was genuinely trying to stop but I had no label and I certainly had no understanding that I had alcoholism. Mm. And so finally after two years of failing – I turned up to AA again, just like, well, I guess maybe they can help me. And it was, um, I remember the first time that I said, hey, I'm Josh, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't believe it, but I kind of figured, well, that's what everyone else is saying, so I'll say it as well. <laughs> so I think it was six months in that I actually started listening and going, and this penny dropped. And I was like, maybe I'm legit, like, I'm actually an alcoholic. Um, and yeah, I'm just glad that I stuck around.
0: Was there a rock bottom moment for you?
1: Not really. I mean, th- there was enough just pain and ridiculous, stupid behaviour, and um, that kind of got me to AA. As as you know, I've said in a lot of AA meetings, you know, you don't turn up to AA on a winning streak. But I don't think there was anything that just was so dramatic. I remember the f- the well, my the first day of sobriety. I was over in Spain, I had been at, at my sister-in-law's wedding actually and I was epically hungover mm. um, and I had a panic attack um, as I do when I'm really hungover Yep. and my wife had taken my two kids, I've now got a third, out that day because she knew I'd be hopeless and I remember walking out and it was a beautiful you know, European coastal city and just kind of going, what, are, what am I missing here? And at that stage, I'd been in AA for about seven months. I had a sponsor. I was actually trying to do the program, and just, I just couldn't quite. I was just half, you know, one foot in, one foot out. But I do remember at one stage just looking up, and actually having willingness, and going, "Come, like God, something, you know, please, like, what am I missing?" Um, And I think at that stage, I genuinely kind of understood that I was in trouble, and that, you know, I do have alcoholism, and and maybe I've actually got to take this seriously. Mm
0: -hmm. Was your wife or your – you mentioned your mum, your sister, were they ever giving you ultimatums or did you sort of feel like you would have that support there until you got it right?
1: I think I felt like I had the support until I got it right from my mum and my sister, but it killed me in turn. Like it killed me Mm. disappointing them Um, because I've always had a very – relationship with them, you know, more so than you know, kind of my, my dad. But I with my wife definitely I see there was ultimatums. Like mm. some of my behaviour. Um you know, I, I don't think who knows, but I I'm, I'm now married, what is it, eighteen years and I've been sober coming on to eight years. And I'm not convinced that I'd be married if I was still drinking.
0: Mm. I think it's so hard for the partner of an addict because, on one hand, you want to be able to love the person back to life. But on the other hand, it's so important that you don't enable them. Yes. And I think tough love goes a really long way in this instance.
1: Yeah. And I think that, um, I think, interestingly, I think my wife was super keen for me to get sober. And then once I got sober, probably after about six months, when I realised, oh my god, I'm an alcoholic, and I actually started getting into the, you know, recovery and meeting other people in recovery. I think I started realising how important it was to stick around people with you know, in recovery and that kind of thing. And then at that stage, I think my wife was like, oh, but you're, you're cured. Like, what you, why, why, <laughs> why are you going out and seeing those people? Why, why don't you be with me? So that that was an interesting kind of you know point yeah now she kind of sees me staying sober um and just all the benefits and our relationship and my relationship with children and just my uh, my participant as a a family member of our household has um i think she's she's really um supportive now and and doesn't ever have any dramas of me turning up to meetings of alcoholics anonymous or anything like that
0: which is amazing because you just touched on a really good point is we don't get sober and then all of a sudden we stop doing the work. You know, We talk about having this daily reprieve contingent on the spiritual program that we maintain and how connected we are, how much service we're doing, how much we're showing up. It's really, really important. I know for me right now I'm averaging at the moment about five meetings a week. I've done less before. I've done more before. But coming up to three years of sobriety, that's where I'm at. And that's where I feel like I'm, when I'm doing that, I'm running my best. I've, in terms of the way I behave, the way I think, everything is better when I stay connected. In regards to getting sober at 10 years of marriage, And now staying together for another eight years after that, I think that's incredible. And I just want to know a bit more about that because a lot of the time, I think more often you hear the story that one person comes into recovery and then they separate. That was my experience. And I understand that to be because when one person comes into recovery and the other person doesn't, whether they're an addict or not, the person that comes into recovery goes on this rapid Growth path is the best way to describe it. It's like this trajectory of woof, and all of a sudden they're learning all these things about themselves, and their eyes open up. And I honestly feel like I started life all over again. So if your partner's not doing the same thing, it can be really hard to actually continue to grow and foster that relationship. How did you guys go about doing that?
1: So um, with a lot of a um, uh, f- lot of trial and error. Fails. Um, so I think, as I said initially, because it was very obvious to my wife that I had a problem. When I solved that problem, well, via AA as opposed to just my ability to do it myself, which I was unable to do for a couple of years, she was really happy. Then I think um, I started to understand that recovery was much bigger than just stopping drinking. And so I really kind of leaned in and got a service position and got a sponsor and all these other things. And that was great. And, but, but again, I think at some stage it, it, it was an issue in our marriage in the sense that she was like, why are you prioritizing these people that you've just met over me and our children? Sure. So it was really that balance and I had to get that balance right. And I didn't always get it right. Um, like I went on a, a camp once with some um, people in recovery and, I remember having to kind of explain it and then getting frustrated and just normal, you know, relationship stuff. But I guess um, the probably the way we dealt with it was um, I was one aware that um, it was an issue for her. So I I wasn't going to daily meetings, but I was probably doing three or four a week. Um, And then sometimes I'd do them during the day so that, you know, from work or something like that. So I was kind of around and the other thing was that because I was drinking previously and often at nights I was completely useless or not, literally not there, I was actually a lot more active in terms of the children and being around anyway and I think she was kind of able to realise that and see that on a net basis she was massively in front in terms of my participation in our relationship and the family and then I guess – Having a sponsor for me was really good because initially when I went through the 12 steps, she'd say, he'd say, you know, well, one of the things I'd do is I'd call him every day and talk about, you know, it, I needed to make amends. And after a while at one stage, I'd ring him up and say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I had this issue with my wife, and but I've made amends. And he said to me once, he goes, Josh, you realise that, you know, the whole gist of this is not so that you just – stuff up and then make amends (laughs) and that's like the way you roll for the next 50 years you know you're supposed to get ahead of it and actually prevent that behavior and i was like oh really so you know it's been a journey it's been a, a learning curve but um yeah
0: i love that that's such a great example of how our perspective and our mindset shifts which then impacts our behaviors what are some of the other things that you've noticed that have changed within your personality and your behaviours since getting sober?
1: So that's probably the thing I'm most, um, without sounding pathetic, like proud of um, because I, I was really racked with a lot of what I think is, what I now describe as self-centred fear, just just seeing the world from my eyes only and um, fear-based but then, then just acting, you know. With good intention, bad intention, it doesn't matter just and now um I do genuinely i've developed like a spiritual program which I think I was always seeking without even realizing i was i was seeking it um and I, I grew up with with a religion, but I never connected with it and so yeah, I've just developed a spiritual way of living now where um i I basically just try to go i mean it sounds a bit trite but Go with the flow, um, let the chips fall the way they fall. Sweep my side of the street. If I'm not happy with someone's behavior, or if I think something's unfair or whatever, just let it go and and just be. Really, just kind of just figure that. Well, this is the way it is. You know, and having a spiritual lens rather than retaliate or try to control or manipulate any of that. I just try to just you know, and not every day's clearly um a, a day of perfection in that regard but i just it just tr- just that and that framework of that lens of kind of looking at life has just been so much more i mean it's just so much easier to live like i just i cannot probably emphasize like it just revolutionized my life without being um kind of um what's that word when you kind of an evangelist without being evangelistic about it. Like I just find life so much easier when I'm on that kind of um, mindset. Mm.
0: You mentioned that before you came into recovery, you were running with a pretty high ego, which I'm imagining was coupled with low self-esteem. Yes. And in the rooms and in recovery in general, we, we hear this concept of this idea of being right-sized. Can you tell me how you've been right-sized in your recovery?
1: Yep. Yeah, um Predominantly, I think pain has has required me to right size. Um, My natural inclination is to my ego, which I just probably describe as a strong sense of self, so how strongly I'm just stuck in me, my own thoughts, my own views, my own how the world is impacting me. Um, I remember my sponsor used to say, you know, mate, you're you're a speck of sand, on a beach like that's the reality mm. so just get perspective um so he probably right-sized me when i was um in enough pain to be honest with him about where i was at in recovery i'm talking about and then the other things i think have been um actually going on a spiritual journey and actually you know do, listening to a lot of podcasts on spirituality not you know not, not necessarily even recovery stuff but just i've had to Go down the path of, you know, what does God mean to me? What is a higher power? What is, um, or what? Are, what's the meaning of life, basically? Mm. And um, so that I can have a, a framework that allows me to wake up and just live a kind of peaceful life or a more peaceful life. Um, that's what's kind of right sized me just knowledge and asking for help.
0: Mm. What's been the most challenging part about getting sober for you?
1: The first six to 12 months were difficult. Probably the first six months I was struggling. I found I still had the compulsion to drink alcohol. So when you've got the compulsion and you've got a busy life and you're trying to avoid certain triggers or events that, you know, w- will make it even more difficult, I found that challenging. Um, I also found it, diff- I don't have a problem now, but I used to find it difficult thinking to myself, how am I going to turn up to that? professional event or lunch or or wedding or whatever it was how can I like I, I literally did not comprehend how I could turn up and not drink alcohol from both my perspective but then thinking well what are they what am I going to say what, what people mm. go, why, why? so I remember used to say I used to lie and say um I've oh, I'm on antibiotics initially <laughs> and then I transitioned to oh, I'm just not drinking for the moment like, I never told people I've got a problem. Now I don't even think about it. And actually, no, most people don't even ask me. I just mm-hmm. go, no, thanks. Or if they say to me, now, if people say to me, oh, you don't why aren't you drinking. I say, I haven't drunk for seven years. And that's I just leave it like that. I just go, I'm happy. I'm happy with that, you know. And it's funny, most people just accept it. It's not a big deal for most people.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you have any little tools or techniques that you had in your back pocket when you did start to reintroduce yourself into those business lunches, weddings, birthdays?
1: Yeah. um, So one of them was, uh, and this is all just suggestions from people in the Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, stop focusing on yourself and actually start listening and asking questions and actually be present. Because one of our problems, or one of my problems, was I was always – stuck in my own thoughts on my mm. own and I actually never was really that interested in other people so I should just actually sit there ask questions listen be curious so I did that which I found useful
0: mm. I love that saying be interested not interesting
1: mm. yeah and then the other one was I remember going to a pretty intimate dinner and like they were making I think like a four course meal it's just couples dinner and I was like how this is impossible for me <laughs> and um, again I got some advice and they're like why don't you just focus on helping because that it was at home so it wasn't like they had waitresses or anything like that and I remember like halfway maybe three quarters of the way through so I was literally just like pouring people drinks I think I was actually pouring people wine but I said I'm not drinking and no, everyone was kind of cool that no one really pressed me on why um, but I was literally picking up people's plates taking it to the kitchen you know and the host, um, or the 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 female host, there was a male host as well, um, she came up to me like halfway through and she's like, Josh, just can I ask you like you've been so like she basically said, You're amazing. Mm. And I kind of jokingly kind of said, Oh, I'm not always like this. But ironically, like that's not the way I am. But it was just really easy for me to just be in a helpful mode and that that kind of allowed me to not focus on the drinking side.
0: It's mm, a really good tip. I love that one. Mm. What's been the biggest lesson then that you've learnt in sobriety?
1: Um, I think that my perspective of the world and the situation is not just factual, like it's just a perspective. And so I've got the opportunity to look at it you know, with, from a different view. Like it's, it's, it is an option. So even if I think that's – you know, my feelings that often go – hand in hand with my perspective. Um, sometimes there's a lag, like the feelings will stick around, but I do have an option and a choice to change my perspective and often my feelings will flow. So p- better feelings associated with a different perspective, whether it's, you know, anything, work or relationships or um, hope, you know. Um. So, yeah, I've just, again, I think it all comes down to just a, a spiritual way of living rather than, josh's world and josh's way and the world according to me it's like you know scorch earth policy i'm nothing i don't my my thoughts are basically just random and so just trying to find like a universal kind of energy or a universal kind of source that's a little bit more um got nothing to do with me and trying to tap into that and then just finding a bit of peace that way Mm. that's what i that's the biggest thing that i've developed
0: I recently heard someone say, you don't have to believe everything you think. And it was mind blowing for me because I I took a moment to step back and I thought, how often does a thought pop into my head? I don't question it. And then I run with it. And then all of a sudden you're sitting in a resentment or you've got a chip on your shoulder. And it's like, oh no, hang on a minute. Like who's to say that, what I think is actually correct. It sounds correct because it's coming from my voice, right? But a lot of the time it's not. And it's been built from other pieces of information that may not be correct. And it's just like this ability to pause and to question our thoughts and not necessarily think that we're God. That's right. It changes your life.
1: Yeah. And I had no, I mean, I literally had no understanding that was even a possibility. Yeah. (laughs) So it's pretty bizarre.
0: So you've talked a lot today about enhancing your spiritual life and living living a spiritual program. What does that actually look like? Give me some tangible examples.
1: Well, I mean, a good one is I listen to your podcast uh, so with respect for the first time yesterday and go, oh, this is really professional and then walking in here just <laughs> going, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> and then you're going, no, no, you'll be fine. And then basically, um, you know, I actually, was, as I was walking in, I was just like, okay, we'll just go with the flow, it'll be right. And so when I was like, it'll be right, I was really just handing it over to what I kind of describe as, you know, a, a power greater than me. You know, I, I choose to call it God, but it doesn't really need to be that. But I was just like, okay, well, it'll be what it'll be. Mm. You know, in the past, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had a process or a mindset to be able to do that. I was just just been really anxious and had a panic attack. And I've had panic attacks. I've got, I've, I've, when I was in active alcoholism, I mean, this is how crazy it was, I was presenting to people and had the most epic panic attack on stage. And then after that, I was actually doing these presentations all around Australia and I made my sister fly with me to every single state and sit there, right, and stand there. In the event that I'd have another panic attack, wow. like that's how that's how much it kind of impacted me. So um, I haven't, and I and I have presented this in, you know, in recovery, and I've kind of just turned up, and I'm like, well, it'll be what it'll be. Um, so I just I just try to let the chips fall the way they fall, and just be a bit more pragmatic about it.
0: Yeah, I love what you said then, just about handing it over. Yeah, you don't need to run the show anymore. Correct. I often explain to people when I was running the show. I burnt my life to the ground. Yeah. I ended up in rehab. Like I have proven to myself time and time again that I'm not so great at managing my own life.
1: That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> you hand it over and then all of a sudden like this freedom, it's just like being able to flow in that stream of life is just such a beautiful place to be. And that's where for me, I found this like real, the real meaning of peace and contentment. Yes. It's amazing.
1: And can I just say one more thing? Absolutely. So it also applies to outcomes. So, when I was walking in here, it's probably easiest to go, oh, well, I'll just hand it over. But let's say I did a really shit job, okay? And you, I still, I mean, maybe it is a shit job, but <laughs> I think it's okay. We're going good. We're going good, good. But I'm just saying that the outcome, if the outcome's not in line with what I want, I've also got to be prepared to just accept that, you know? Mm. And that's, that's the harder part, I think, you know? When things don't go your way, when things are not the way I think they should be, I've got to be able to let go and go, well, that is the way it is and and not just get stuck in this just kind of morbid reflection so they're all it's literally all just learning like I pretty much didn't grow up when I was drinking I don't reckon emotionally so I've only been I figure I'm probably eight years old
0: and on top of that to go even further knowing how to take accountability and responsibility Yeah. so if you don't show up the way that you wanted to or you make a mistake being able to like you said make amends own up to it and then change your behavior you know we talk a lot about taking contrary action doing the opposite of what your head says that's where you get this growth whereas for me when I was in addiction I would just repeat the same mistakes time and time and time again wondering why I wasn't getting a different result
1: yes very true
0: Josh, what would you say to someone who's listening to this episode and they're really struggling with addiction, whether that be alcohol, drugs, or maybe it's a process addiction? They're really struggling, but they're, like you were, full of fear about what could be on the other side of this. What would you say to them?
1: Well, I mean, you can always go back to your active addiction. It's not like there's any contract that you need to sign with any outside body or or anyone I would have thought to to just try an alternative but for me the alternative has been so much more preferential that I I guess probably I just say that give it a go and if it doesn't work we'll go back to your old life Mm. no one's actually locking you into this but if you don't try and you don't give yourself the opportunity you'll never know
0: Mm. I don't know about you, but I'm yet to meet anyone in recovery who regrets getting sober.
1: No, hundred percent. in fact, people that have tried sobriety and then have gone back and tried not non sobriety, I've often heard some pretty um extremely confronting stories about that. so I um sometimes occasionally i don't thank God the compulsion drinks gone, but you know sometimes I'll be out and see people just drinking. Some white wine on a nice summer's day with complete impunity. Um and I'll think, Oh, that'd be nice. But then I just play out, well, let's look at my track record when it comes to that. And I'm just I'm okay with the fact that I've run my race. Like I've I had I had a very good drinking career and now I just got a different way of living life. And it's just I don't sit in the kind of poor me self pity. I just kinda go, Well, that's not I can't do that anymore.
0: Mm. What does the future look like for you, Josh?
1: Um, hopefully good. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I have no desire to stop participating in recovery and having friends in recovery and helping out. And you know, I've got a sponsee. and um, my oldest is um, just started Year Eight, and my middle child's about is in Grade Six. So you know, and my youngest is about to do prep next year so I'm I'm kind of enjoying being present and just watching them you know go through the different stages and then I've kind of got a pretty intense life but um and sometimes I do get overwhelmed don't get me wrong but I've I've just feel like yeah life's good I've got no regrets I've got zero regrets since I got sober put it that way
0: yeah that must be a pretty incredible contrast to the person that was waking up four times a week with that guilt, shame and remorse, remembering what they did the night before.
1: Yeah, the literal opposite extreme.
0: Mm. Josh, there's one final question that I like to ask the guests that join Behind the Smile. And that question is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life today that is happy, joyous and free?
1: Wow. So I think the first non-negotiable is trying to maintain connection so if I do feel myself um either being disconnected from my family or or just just life just actually being having enough self-awareness to understand what I need to do and sometimes it's doing things that when you when you are disconnected not naturally what you want to do at the time so really trying to stay connected I think is really important for me personally
0: and what would what would it, the feeling of disconnection look like? So, if, if somebody maybe doesn't ha- quite have the awareness to go, "Oh, I'm disconnected right now. I need to lean into connection." What would that feel like for you?
1: Um, not being honest. So, someone will say, "Hey, Josh, how are you going?" I'm like, "You're good," even <laughs> though I'm not feeling good. Rather than saying, "Oh, I'm okay. I'm worried about the like," so not being honest, not being vulnerable, mm. like not actually telling the truth about where I'm at not wanting to just be around people. So not wanting to turn up to events that I'm oh, well, what am I going to say? What I'm, you know, it'll be crap, but, you know, mm. so there's just thoughts that are just, whereas often just being, a, you know, being, you know, just being part of something. Um, same, same with AA, you know, for me, sometimes I don't want to turn up and that's why I think having a home group is really important because, you know, I've made a commitment to them anyway and they're like, they, they expect me there. Mm. So, Probably connection. The first one. Um, the second one is having a spiritual framework. Um, so that requires some things like if I don't pray in the morning, then I'll forget that my thoughts need to be based on a spiritual kind of lens, and you know I'll be um, susceptible to road rage and every other human, human kind of behavior and emotion. So probably yeah, just having a process that reminds me daily. And then the other one would be trying to just probably trying to right-size myself and be able to have perspective and whether that's work, whether that's relationships, whether that's food and exercise, just trying to have some balance and not having – because I think I am a bit of an extremist by – nature and just that doesn't hasn't always doesn't always serve me well, hasn't served me well. So just trying to have some kind of balance rather than just going all in, which is kind of um potentially something that I'm able or susceptible to doing.
0: Mm. There are three separate really helpful tools that I think anybody listening could implement back into their own lives. So thank you for that. Josh, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So I cannot thank you enough for giving me your time today and for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Ash. You've got a beautiful place here.
0: (laughs) I'll chat to you soon, Josh.